I spit on your podcast, a monthly horror podcast brought to you by the Spencers of Horror. This is a time once a month where Jess puts down her bloody knitting needles and I step away from the TV to discuss horror movies and sometimes other horror mediums with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. In this episode, we are going to be talking about one of our favorite subgenres of horror, which is found footage. Particularly, we're going to look at films that have the audience asking, is this real? And the dangers of the internet, and especially Stranger Danger. The film's up for discussion is The Divisive, Megan is Missing from 2011, and The Den from 2013. Trigger warning, we will be talking about content that may be triggering to some of our listeners, such as child molestation, rape, and murder. So pick your poison and listen on, if you dare. Hey, what's up? Get out of your house right now! Lynn! What? Why? Lynn, please just get out of your house right now. It's in there. Go out the f- Go What out. are you talking about? Lynn, listen to me. Please just get out of your house right now. I'm not get out of Lynn? Lynn! Shit. Hello? So, Kelly, here we are. We're back. We're talking found footage. Why do we choose these films? Well, we are both massive found footage horror fans definitely i think in like our both of our top three favorite subgenres of horror but we didn't want to do the usual suspects we didn't want to do the paranormal activity we've already covered the blair witch project and this is a very deep subgenre of horror there's there's hits a lot of misses, but there are a lot of movies out there. You can go on Tubi and find probably 100 found footage horror movies right now. But we wanted to cover some movies that were more unique, a little bit more interesting, and somewhat disturbing movies, actually. Um, I had seen Megan is Missing and covered it for my other podcast, Our Bloody Obsession, but really wanted to give it the Spencers of Horror treatment. Yeah, especially because when we talked about doing found footage we were like how we want to do something different i remember when we were having our meeting and discussing it i'm like i want to go at the angle of like youtube and because both kelly and i have a thing where we like to get together and do spooky stories and we watch like youtube videos of like you know supposed ghost sightings or like weird things (laughs) that happen but has is asking the question like is this real and often you get that same thing with found footage like and that's one of the things about i enjoy about found footage genre is like as you're watching it you're like oh is this real how could this be real or how is this drawing me in to make me really interested in this film and this month has been really fun because i've been jumping in and watching a lot more found footage and i've come to realize i have a love-hate relationship with it because sometimes (laughs) it's great and you get an awesome film or ones that really sit with you and other times you get ones where like that was a bit of a stinker (laughs) like you kind of kind of miss the point of found footage and like there's certain elements that come to making a really good found footage film so i guess to really start us off is like let's talk about what is found footage horror yes found footage as a medium is really interesting it can be really really effective like you said jess it's it can be really effective if done really well not effective if it's done poorly and uh, we're both i think kind of strict sticklers when it comes to formatting of found footage movies and what makes them work and what makes them not work. So the origins are like the definition of found footage horror. Essentially movies that are literally found or discovered or movies that are filmed with handheld cameras, surveillance cameras, or both. They could be like interviews or mockumentaries, voiceovers. However, the very origin of the name found footage is a name lifted from an already established filmmaking practice from the 30s, 40s, 50s. So Joseph Cornell's Rose Hobart from 1936 and Bruce O'Connor's A Movie from 1958. 
So they had talked about how found footage films are actual just material shot by somebody else to be used for a different reason. Yeah, and technically, found footage can also be considered something further back. People have talked about the book Dracula, and because it's all letters mm, and it's yes. all correspondence yeah. back and forth, like that was actually yeah. a type of uh, literary prose that a lot of Gothic art- yeah. authors would use. Is like, and that's technically considered found footage as well because it's someone else's perspective. It's something, and it's been found and it's been put together, and people are reading it later. Yeah. But when we're talking about it in the film sense, it's often these are films that are evoking this, like, like it's mimicking like reality for us and that what we're seeing is like something we would see on like mainstream news but it's combined with like an amateur recording like someone's behind it with a camera and it's they're filming the whole thing the whole time and the whole time you're asking is why are they keep filming why do they keep filming <laughs> and like you said and like often found footage is kelly has said it's something that's discovered is usually discovered. It's pre-existing film that was discovered and they put it all together. They, you know, you get like documentaries that usually started out that way. And often elements of found footage include amateur filmmaking, always. If it's mm-hmm. too polished, it doesn't, it's, it's nope. not found footage. Yep. <laughs> not going to work. Not going to work. Um, you're not going to have sound. I, I hate when people do found footage movies and they say like, oh, we added like the sound music. later. We added the music later. And I'm like, yeah, why? No music. No music. No music. Um, <laughs> often deal with mysterious disappearances. People just mm-hmm. vanish and there's no, re- we have no re- explanation as to why this footage exists, where that person is to correspond, the realness of that evidence. And often the footage has to be undoctored. You can't make it mm-hmm. look like it's been edited in any way. It's undoctored, true events that have occurred. And often, like, so we see found footage often used a lot for like paranormal stories, for serial yeah. killers, for cryptids. Like, that's where our aliens, we've, we, Kelly and I have seen quite a few different found yeah. footage styles, <laughs> cults. <laughs> They're out there. Yeah. <laughs> but the what I think makes found footage horror very effective, because it is one that if I know a movie is found footage I my spookometer's already gone up like a tick or yeah. two because I already know like okay what gets me is that I feel like I have no control over what's happening in the movie, but if it's like your classic theatrical kind of cinematic experience, I know everything has been controlled and pre-planned. But found footage anything could happen because it's just like amateur random people filming stuff that is very normal or banal in nature. It's just every, like the everyday life, but something extraordinary happens to make them want to keep filming or something extraordinary happens and then they die or go missing. And we have that footage to kind of recreate that mystery, follow in those footsteps and figure out where they're at. But what we're watching is our own world. It's not a movie, even though, again, we can easily, you know, take our disbelief away. But like, no, it's still just a movie. But it's a little bit more challenging to do that mm-hmm. with found footage. It's easy to kind of get pushed into this world because it's so similar to our own. And sometimes, yes, it's filled with paranormal, supernatural stuff, which may or may not exist in our world. But it could be, and you're watching found footage, it's like, oh no, this could actually be happening because these are real people like me in these situations that I'm no longer an audience. Like I'm just like a spectator watching something real unfold in front of my eyes. And that is, I think, where the true horror lies. It's seeing how relatable the horror in found footage horror is. Yeah, it was like you said, it's blurring that reality between us. It's I love the fact that when you look at the history of found footage, 
it often corresponds with the history of technology and it goes back and forth and we've seen over the years found footage has changed it's gone from like you know regular just film like camcorders to now digital imagery websites video blogs live cameras surveillance like anything that could record you on a day-to-day life is being used like even you know kelly and i talk to each other on skype right we know that we've seen movies where we're using video conferencing technology and that creates a found footage but found footage kicked off in the 70s and 80s we did have earlier films but really did when it kicked off in the 70s 80s it was more documentary style and this was because people had more access to the type of film equipment that a documentary crew would would have and right often they would be going out to areas in the wild so a great example of that one is cannibal holocaust kelly has seen that one recently what do you think mm-hmm. about this one as a doc is like a film about a documentary crew in the amazon it's like a faux documentary but as a found footage film what did how did you find find it especially from the 70s yeah well good question um so i was surprised because the whole movie is not found footage it's predominantly a film where they do find the old film roles of a documentary crew that had gone in and they went missing. So they went back in and found their film and then they were just showing it to other filmmakers because they were potentially going to make a movie or make a documentary about these filmmakers and kind of continue on with their research. But then once they saw their footage and it was awful, they, well, some people didn't want to actually show that footage <laughs> and turn that into a documentary because it was awful. It's because the the white people were the villains of that story. But it was really well made when it, when it came to the actual footage, which is great because it was unedited, undoctored, no sound. And it was all just like raw reels, raw real footage. Um, so, I mean, it was interesting because it had, it already is going to have that kind of like gritty feel to it and you want I want my found footage to be a little dirty I don't want it to be crystal clear pristine I want it to look a little messed up I I want a finger in it a fingerprint smudge on the camera sometimes like I want it to be dirty I want it to be realistic because I want to be put into that kind of environment I want to be scared but so yeah Cannibal Holocaust isn't a hundred percent found footage it's just about footage that is found so I just went into it with a different expectation and came out really enjoying it yeah it's so it's like that more documentary type style of found footage or the mm-hmm. mockumentaries that we find often yeah. get co- put together with found footage together it's like found footage and mockumentary they kind of go hand in hand but then later yeah. on as we see the rise of the camcorder people being able to have like personal handheld camcorders you know uh, filming equipment it's getting smaller more compactable people can take them out anywhere they want if they want to go out to the woods and go looking for a witch as that's how you get the Blair Witch, right? You know, filming yeah. that way, the rise of VHS, people are able to film what they have. They have one on like on VHS tapes. They live in basements area and people are just pulling out this random box being like, oh, what's all this random tape and stuff like that? Let's watch it. Oh, the Poughkeepsie tapes. Like, you know, like, <laughs> you get these yeah. elements that are all yeah. coming in, that are, but it's all really interesting because it's all connected to technology and like and as technology keeps mm-hmm. changing and as we keep being able to like film ourselves and record ourselves the content is expanding and so we get like also like the the rise of digital technology our cell phones we are getting people filming all the time video conferencing people being filming each other on video conferencing 
And all of this is happening, which then we see at the same time, the rise of YouTube. And I feel like found footage um, as a genre really exploded when YouTube came out in uh, 2005 and it really spread in 2006 because that's where a lot of amateurs could put their product. Mm -hmm. They can go on, they can really do that amateur style film, filming on their cell phones and stuff like that uploaded to YouTube and people start losing their minds. Yeah. Marble Hornets. Yeah. Prime example of a very successful indie, very spooky, very low budget project. Yeah. And because like you're getting these people who are not only just filmic, creating films and putting on YouTube, you're also blending it with actual mixed reality of people out there filming first, like raw firsthand accounts of elements that are happening in the in the world, whether it be a car accident, whether it be a fight that's breaking out. And then often that footage wouldn't often be manipulated by a news story so it could be filtered and sent out to the audience so we see it on the local news. They're like, oh, but we only get a half of it. But if you go online, you could see the whole video. So you're getting this blend of amateur films being put up on uh, YouTube with that found footage style. But then you're also getting that mix of Oh, is this real? Like, am I? What this is like? This is actual real evidence is happening on 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 my screen right now. I think found footage horror is one of the more exciting subgenres of horror because it's constantly changing. Because our world's constantly changing. Because found footage is like you said, Jess, like absolutely reliant upon technology. And as technology changes and evolves at a incredibly increasingly rapid pace so is found footage horror they have to find new ways to scare us because hey we've seen all these found footage horror movies we know the tropes we know the conventions it's going to be harder for us to believe that this is happening like horror movies when the invention of the cell phone came in they're like oh well just use your cell phone okay well now there's quote no cell service (laughs) that's not really a thing anymore like you're not going to be there's cell service everywhere it's more based on maybe your own cell phone plan yeah You have a shitty cell phone plan. There's, it's more re- related to cell phone plans than it is accessibility to <laughs> cell phone towers and shit. So, you know, they had to knock that out. They used to be, you know, we'd had landlines and there were cell phones. So horror kind of has to evolve with our own society and technology evolving. So found footage horror constantly evolving, constantly trying to, you know, push our barriers, push our boundaries as viewers because it's becoming more and more realistic. Because like you said, Jess, we all have laptops that I'm looking in right now and cell phones and all kinds of devices that can make it easy for anyone to make a film. A lot of people just filming movies on their cell phone because it's in 4K, which is mind blowing to me. But everybody like I could make a horror movie right now if I wanted to with my own phone. But literally with this like exponential rise of technology, media networks, information's traveling faster than ever, the internet. Anyone can participate in like online events and online things that are changing. We're no longer just people viewing stuff that's happening in our world. We're reporters and commentators, sorry, as well. We're structuring our own reality and we can do that in horror movies, um, which I think also what makes it so, so spooky. Horror, as we know historically, and we talk through our Know Your Roots, the origins of horror, horror can reflect social anxieties around us. And found footage horror can be seen as identifying social anxieties around all of this new technology, right? And we decided to, again, focus on stuff that wasn't supernatural, wasn't paranormal. That would have been a really easy route to go. And though that is spooky in like a, quote, horror genre realm, 
What's more terrifying than the realities of stranger danger and the dangers on the internet and people like meeting people from the internet? That to me is scarier than the spooky found footage like Grave Encounters. Yeah, it's good for a scare and a jump scare, but what's going to last long with me? Watching Megan is missing. I was just going to say, I'm like, especially coming out of a pandemic where for about two and a half years, we were reliant on the internet. Like that was our only means of connection and communication to our loved ones, to people, to experiencing life again. But then it opened up a whole new world of the terrifying world of the internet. And this is kind of what these two films like that we're going to get into and discuss about is the realities of the internet and that use um the uses and the stranger danger and how unaware as users we are um when it comes to like downloading an app on your phone or downloading software on your computer like people how people Mm -hmm. can easily get into your life through technology that's terrifying (laughs) so let's talk about our first movie the den hey i'm elizabeth what's up Nothing much. I'm uh, actually just trying to meet some new friends. I'll be your friend. Oh, cool. Okay, yeah. Let's be friends. Can I tell you a secret? Hey! Hello! Hello! Do you come on here a lot? Are you guys in school? Hey, oh my god, you're on a bike. I'm on my bike! Yeah! <laughs> you should come over here and help me finish this bottle of wine. I'm sorry, I'm still working. Yeah! Your boyfriend's got some great moves. <laughs> this is such an idea! I think that I just witnessed a murder. They want you to watch. They want to see your reaction. Are you sure this isn't a friend of yours playing a prank? Why isn't anybody doing anything? They're watching everything. is the same because we watched this movie for the first time together. So when we were having, when Jess and I sat down to have this discussion about what we were going to cover for found footage, we both agreed we wanted to Megan is Missing. Jess is a trooper for watching Megan is Missing, just saying. But we needed something to pair it with that would have that similar kind of themes that we could talk about. And so we watched The Den and agreed that it was a good pairing, essentially. You know, we watched it for the first time together and it's not, again, we didn't want to go the spooky supernatural paranormal route, which a lot of folks would go, but the more unsettling, more brutal route. So, and I think that they are a good pairing. I I think they definitely are a good pairing. They both connect on very similar levels when it comes to the uses of webcams and the dark, sinister things that exist on the internet. Really, when you look at these films, they're very similar films. We're just dealing with, well, no, they're not similar. There's different, they're different in various ways, but similar in other ways. Biggest similarity is that we're dealing with women and we're dealing with 
the threat that is that there's threats that exist for women online. We have threats that exist in the world. We also have threats that exist online. And so that's what I found interesting. Yeah. And then yeah, so with the den. So what are your likes? For this film, for the den, I I really like the found footage style of it. I think it follows a rule, our rules, the quote rules that I know you and I have for for found footage, <laughs> the unspoken rules of found footage. But I think it follows it very well. There's no opening ending credits. It just begins and then it ends and it just is. Um, so I really like that it follows the found footage rules that I've set out personally. I like the story. Some of the kills and gore, like it's pretty brutal at times. Um, it's it is pretty unsettling as a premise, as a general whole, as a movie. Elizabeth, though maybe sometimes her acting wasn't incredibly moving. I liked her as a character and I found her pretty relatable, uh, especially when it came down to survival close to the end because she kicked as much ass as she could without hesitation. Yeah. And I really appreciated that on this watch that when the going got tough, she got going. Yeah. And I I really appreciated that because uh, nobody believed her and that is a hard place to be in, which is the exact place the killers wanted her to be. But uh, yeah, also great runtime. Found footage normally has a really great short, concise runtimes and I respect that. Yeah. How about you? I, I agree with you. That's, <laughs> that's definitely one of my likes about this film, Megan is Missing, but also good found footage when you're like you said, it's like it can't be over an hour and 30 minutes. Not even that. Sometimes I just want an yeah. hour. And because, like, yeah. usually yep. that's a very intense moment. And, like, the whole thing, yeah. like, it carries over a couple days. You kind of have to take yourself out of the place, and be like, okay, well, I know things are being edited because this is clearly over many days of things that are happening. Yeah. But I definitely like the runtime. I definitely agree with you that it is perfect in the sense that there is, like, no, over, no overlaying, like, soundtrack or sound to it. It's beginning and ends and we just get these interesting characters I like I I find I really like the computer like seeing I always wonder like how are we seeing this as an audience like watching the computer but I enjoy those watching those interactions right of the individuals I there's like two things I like I really like how it shows how users don't know how to use computers and I really dislike that <laughs> but that's only mm -hmm. that's only because of my my day-to-day -day job and what I know what I've learned but it's also like a reality and it's and it's true in that it shows that as users, as computer users, we do not know as much to protect ourselves as we think we do, and that we don't mm -hmm. realize the anonymity is not truly there um, when we think it is. And so I really liked that about the film. You were right; like it's terrifying that it's based upon some real things that we're going to talk about later on, and I think they really portrayed those very really well. However, on my second watch, I liked it less than the first time. I think the first time because I didn't know where it was going to go and stuff like that it got me yeah, the first time yeah. the second watch around I just got more frustrated with with uh, Elizabeth and be like why are you doing mm -hmm. this like but then I was also getting frustrated with the people that weren't believing her and be like of course the police don't believe in like cyber stuff because like they don't no one really knows how to deal with things online and so I, I really enjoyed those um true reactions because people would say to her like well it's just people being weird on the internet and like you are not wrong like when she opened up <laughs> herself to that chat room to You're not, everyone not correct. yeah, yeah. Like, so i really i really enjoyed that but one of my dislikes about the film is that i feel like it gets messy in the end because we go from having watched uh liz's story elizabeth's story on her computer the whole time to going to the killer's camera 
And then we go, and then we see like at the end, like the killers falling with a camera, and you know they're clearly part of the organization. And to me, it just I'm like, well, now you changed it. We've changed the mm. eye, and now it's taken me out of this. And I can understand why right. they do that because technically the story would have to end. Like somehow Elizabeth would have to yeah. watched her sister be murdered, and then wait for them to come get her. So I, it just that's I don't like that last bit, and it doesn't sit well with mm. me. But I understand why they're doing it because they want us to show her the true horror that there was probably this like group out there doing all this and manipulating. So we saw like the more like the deeper horror, but I don't like mm-hmm. that. I feel like it should have just ended earlier, mm. not changed the view of the camera. Good point. I never really thought about that. Didn't really bother me. The only couple of dislikes was the ending ending, which we'll talk more about later, like the actual ending ending of the actual movie. My other dislike is related to kind of what you're doing. So you were saying, but the killers kill a cop or two, which then to me makes the story unbelievable because these killers... These group of individuals are only going to be successful if they evade the police and the law as much as possible. They would be much more careful than stringing up this cop and this like, like <laughs> Ms. own scene, like murder tableau thing. Though cinematically is it fun to watch? Yes, to see this like elaborate death scene, sure. But that kind of takes me out of it because I'm like, you would not do that. You're going to isolate and scare this woman. And then that's when you're going to pluck her and that's when you're going to get her. And that's what's going to happen, which again, that still does happen, but you didn't need all the like elaborate uh, cop deaths and all of that, because that's just going to get people to you sooner because cops care more about cops than they do individual citizens, we'll say. So So if you kill, yeah, you kill a cop, they're going to come after and they're going to investigate, right? Two cops were killed. Yes. Like, yeah. So that's what I'm like, as as like an organization that is supposed to exist within the dark web, (laughs) you kind of put up some big red flags. Like, yes. (laughs) Yeah. You're starting to kill cops because obviously you've done this before many times so don't kill cops that's going to get you found unless all the cops are in on it but poor dead cops like that's it's not going to work anyways but overall really enjoyed the den the other movie i would say that's similar in vain but i don't remember being as brutal and, uh, and unsettling is unfriended dark web similar types of ideas of the dark deep dark web and like sinister things happen nefarious things happening there for sure another that would be a good double feature but i feel like the den was just more unsettling it's very unsettling yeah so let's talk about the den so the den is really a pioneer in this quote screen life storytelling and narrative found footage screen life is a term folks that's what i'm learning but you know they use various computer and app-based app like interactions and applications and then we're following around a Elizabeth, who then, like we were saying, gets targeted by this group of individuals that, as we learned by the end of the movie, are doing this over and over again with a variety of different people, men, women, everybody in between. Um, But after she witnesses on purpose, question mark, I don't think, I think it was on purpose, um, a murder online, then she gets targeted from this uh, group of individuals. But like I said, Horror is always at the forefront of portraying and showcasing our social anxieties, our fears. Hello, growing distrust of government, authorities, the law. Um, So I feel like this new wave of like contemporary found footage, this more modernized found footage with very relatable technology that, again, like we said, we all, all so many of us literally have at the palm of our hands and at the 
like at our fingertips at all times. Um, we read this really great article about like the cyber slasher and talking about like surveillance capitalism within social media, but cyber horror, media horror, or screen life horror. There are two forms of this type, screen life horror, media horror, or like cyber horror. One is social media is used as a plot device using traditional formats of filmmaking or t- or two The social media plot device is dramatized through footage shot through different technologies. So like cell phones, computers, virtual reality that makes uh, our social media platforms much more powerful. And again, that term screen life has come into play, which again, I had not even really heard of as like a quote new subgenre of horror. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Like it was like this like subgenre within found footage that it's like, okay, it is using tech like computers and apps and social media as a platform. And it also combines with it, screen life is this concept of a cyber slasher, which I thought was also really interesting where- mm-hmm behind the screen so like what we have what lies behind the main computer screen is an actual living person who's orchestrating all these events behind the screen and they're abducting people they're blackmailing people on social media like they're using technology they're using the protagonist technology against them and they're yes. watching them. They're tapping into that voyeurism of like watching them the whole time through their web cameras. And they end up, what they do is they create this sense of paranoia that you don't know when you're being watched, who's watching you, when they're watching you, who are, who else are they watching that's connected to you? Because here's another big thing. Through using cyber slashers, through using the computers and using the apps, they have access to our data, all of our data. And we already know that a lot of corporations and governments collect our data through everything we use. It's it's a known fact but also this is how these cyber slashers these hackers these individuals these uh, even like predators are getting online they're finding this data they're collecting this information and then they turn it around and they use it to control the victim's life and um, in some way shape or form make profit whether it is through selling that data to other people or that content Um, one of the biggest things that we see in the den that it's not necessarily their data that they're interested in. They have no, they don't care about what Elizabeth's doing. They don't care about her accounts. They don't care about anything on their computer. They have access to all of it. They've show us throughout the film how much access they have to her in her life. They're interested in her and watching her through the web camera. And that is terrifying. Yeah, I like that. I liked, at first I thought the idea of a cyber slasher was kind of lame. (laughs) Cheesy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But when you put it that way, because we're so used of a, of a slasher being, I'm just going to use Jason Voorhees because spooky season's coming up and he's just in my mind. But like having this one person or two, if it's a scream, but like this one person, give or take, watching you from the shadows, watching you from windows, you're walking down the street, like from the bushes, you know what I mean? So they're kind of there and they are watching you lurking, stalking, but you can then get away from them. You know what I mean? Sometimes Michael Myers is in your closet and that's terrifying, but generally like you can easily just get away from them but it's really challenging to get away from a cyber stalker because like you said yes they have access to everything so they'll know what you're doing when you're doing it how you're doing it and you mentioned this in the beginning Jess but we see this in both movies there's a false sense of autonomy but they feel invincible they feel like nothing could happen to us but even as adults you know we don't really put 
too much, like generally speaking, a lot of thought into our internet usage, our app usage and the stuff that we're doing. But we do feel invincible and it's not always the case. So in the den, so Elizabeth is doing her research through something called like chat roulette, but it's called the den. It's a chat roulette. If anybody's ever tried it, I think I tried it a few times, but you kind of go in and it randomizes people to talk to on video. And yeah, there's a lot of weirdos. There's a lot of dicks, of course, or like literal actual penises. Um, But it kind of brings up this idea of who's really out there? Who are we really talking to? And it shows in the movie. And I thought this was a really important part and an important detail through for the whole premise of the movie is that it was like, it was separated into different categories like men, women, like what you wanted to, to search for. And she clicks on give me everyone. And there's a pop up that comes up pretty much as a, like a disclaimer saying the den is not responsible for what happens. Yeah. And I was like, wow. One, yes, you know, I'm going to save your ass here. And then we see a snuff film. We see a live murder. Okay. Um, But you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's really out there. And you show me everyone. Yeah, well, we're going to get everyone. Yeah. And like, and that's like Elizabeth's experience. Like she gets everyone and she's getting all the stuff. She's getting people pranking her, trolling her and like part of her. And she's doing this. So in the film, she's doing this because she wants to see how the Internet has connected people in various ways and how she can make connections with people all the way in the UK, which she does with a very lovely girl. Yeah. Um, yeah. And she also opened herself up for cyberbullying, trolling, exhibitionists, like people, yeah, I think there's sexual harassment. Sexual harassment. Like because <laughs> yes. people think they have this autonomy online because they're yes. behind, the, yep. behind the computer, there's not an actual person in front of me. She's just on the screen. I could do whatever and whatever I want, say what yep. I want, do what I want. And I remember like watching this the first time, like, yeah, that is terrifying. That reminds me of when I was a young woman going on chat rooms and talking to people. And because we are existing in a screen, we act however we want because we're like, well, they don't really know who I am. But then I think back to like, oh, shit, that's not really great because that person on the other side may not be who what they're telling me they are. Right. It's changed now that we have screens. We could like FaceTime with people. But still, like you're opening yourself up to um, a very different world. In reality, we try to maintain composure of things or we stay away from areas that we're like, yeah, we know we're going to see weird things in that area if we go in that area. But the Internet is really different. You know, if you're going in, you're going you're going into something that's really going to open your eyes to things that the world is not what you think it is. And like you said, Kelly, that disclaimer is really important because as that happens and as someone who is uh my background my work is like cybersecurity and stuff like that too i'm like already like freaking out being like oh my god she's using her real name oh my god why is she using an actual like why is she using her personal computer she should be using a burner computer like so what this film ends up really showing us throughout her interactions and throughout the fact that she ends up meeting pay girl where it's just that broken it's just an image of the girl and that she's being chatted to being like my camera's broken and she's mm-hmm. the internet harassing starts the 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 watching her the surveillance and everything it ends up pulling us into what are in what real internet horrors exist which is sex slavery kidnapping pedophilia like they impressing upon the audience that reality is more terrifying than what we see on the film this is just a taste. Like yeah. We're just getting a taste of what Elizabeth yeah. is experiencing. And sometimes, and people have been able to see those things and be like, oh, I can just shut this off and walk away. I'm going to bring up, because you just, I, I just realized 
Do not talk to people who claim they have a broken webcam. Mm -hmm. If they have a broken camera, do not talk to them. Yeah. Both movies. Both both movies. movies. Quote Josh over and Megan is missing. Oh, my camera's broken. Mm -hmm. They do not show you your their real face. Big red flag right there. Yeah. Another like interesting thing, kind of terrifying thing, talking about digital technology. So in our research and like it was really, really great to kind of delve into this because I mean, I don't. I am a vet tech. I don't delve into cybersecurity and I don't know about all of this. I don't, that's not my experience mm-hmm. in day-to-day life. But through our research, it was really interesting learning about technology and really what it's doing to us. It can be really fantastic. It can be really bad. Unfortunately, humans are here in the sense that we always fuck things up. Like we have sometimes good intentions. People take it to bad places. But Digital technology is separating us as civilians in this society into two groups. The watchers, the invisible, unknown, and unaccountable, and the watched. And so the killers in both of these movies are invisible, unknown, and ultimately unaccountable for their actions. And the films portray them as masked figures Or with Josh, we never truly see his face in the end. Well, I know when we talk about Megan is missing, but there's similarities between these movies, but we never do see Josh's face. I think those photos that he sent were not him because the photos of him were a teenager and this is a grown man. Yeah, that is a grown man talking to those 14 year old girls, but there it heightens this monstrous monstrosity of them. Right. We don't see Josh's face. These killers in the den are wearing masks. We don't know who they are. And that's essentially the internet, right? Faceless, masked people that are acting in ways that they cannot almost ever really be held accountable for any of their actions. Which reminds me as well as the male gaze because Josh is a male and Megan is missing. We've got... Probably, I'm just based on, we have everybody's in masks, but a lot of masculine figures in the den, but they're the ones watching them. They're the ones like grooming them. Men are the ones being the predators. They're the ones taking advantage of this, quote, autonomy that they feel like they have, this feeling of being invincible, you know? And it's, ugh. Because this is going to lead me into something that as I was watching The Den, as we watched Megan is Missing, and as we were doing this research, you know, something I've learned a lot is that these predators really rely on the fact that as um, users, we don't have knowledge about the internet. We are constantly contributing our information to computers and online sites and that, like, we're personally in person social medias very um, unintentionally in that it's, it's all over the place. It's everywhere. So something I was discussing with someone the other day is that back in the day when you used to download an app or a software, you would get all kinds of things to be like, do you want this? Do you want this? Like it would ask you like, do you want to remove this, do this, allow this to happen? And you would have to go through and figure that they don't do that anymore. You download an app and it's on your phone and you're going through, you don't go through and modify your settings. And there are actually a lot of our privacy settings are opened us up to a whole bunch of things. And we think that these corporations are protecting us in a way, but we, I mean, they give us a sense that we have this illusion of control because we're not opting out for anything. We're not protecting ourselves the way we used to when we first had started with the internet. Like before, I feel like when we first started with the internet, everyone was much more like, I'm not sure about this. I don't want to really yeah. do this. I'm not going to like, Absolutely. you know, but now we're just like, oh, what is this? Like how many, I, I work in a company where I don't have to I have to deal with so many people being like, do I think this email is a scam? I'm like, yes, it's a scam. Don't, don't click the links. Don't click the links. And that's something that while watching this film, I was getting very frustrated with Elizabeth and be like, first of all, don't click a link from a stranger. Delete that email. 
like blog app. app. Don't use the same <laughs> webcam or chatting app that you're using with these strangers <laughs> online with your friends and families, right? Because this is how hackers get in. So in my research, um, and something I already knew about um, through my, my own work was ratters or the concept of ratting. So both the dad, also Megan is missing, also a kind of way uses it, but in not really, well, kind of, I don't know. We don't know if Josh got into their webcams, but I feel like there's a sense that he did based upon, some, there was a comment that was mm -hmm. said in the film. But what ratters are, are the creepy computer spies. These are individuals who are specialized in discreetly recording videos and images through webcams of hacked individuals. And then what they do is they take these videos and they post them to various hackers or they call them slave forms because once they hack into your computer, they call your computer a slave and they sell and they trade this, the, the, the images to others. So what they're doing is technically it's illegal to surveillance other people, but they're using legal software. So the term rat or ratting comes from uh, rat, which is a remote access tool, which is commonly used by IT specialists and help desk people to help users with their computers. So they're having an issue. Oh, let me like dip into your computer and help walk you through. The software can also be used to infect people's devices. So if you go online, you're downloading from a torrent, or you're downloading a strange file, or someone sends you an email and you click on it, that's a way in which a file can be downloaded onto your computer and allows these routers to click in and hack into your web cameras. And unfortunately, as all things, a growing number of women are being spied upon. They are known as slaves. Is about 23 million posts of on these hacker forums of people being watched, and they don't know it. And what these end up these routers end up doing is they end up start intimidating their victims through messages. They start sending them messages on their computer. Um, they start doing funky things to their computer, changing things around. They start to blackmail them with the information that they've gained from the device. Is what and this is what we see happens in the den. Elizabeth starts being blackmailed. She has her um, a very she has a video recorded of her having sex with her partner sent to her committee, right? Without her knowledge, yeah, you know, they're clicking yeah. into and they're finding information about her friends and they're hacking into their friends yeah. and and it shows us yeah. the loss of privacy and the loss of control and mm -hmm. how central that is. Like her computer is being manipulated by outside forces. And this is a mm -hmm. reality. This happens. Like, this is happening to people. There are forums of these videos mm -hmm. being sold all over. And it's really terrifying. And so, like, a little, like, tidbit for people walking away from this podcast episode. Here's ways to avoid <laughs> uh, getting a router. Be aware of your web camera. If you will see a light come on on your computer, on your laptop, and you are not using a software that would turn your web camera on, investigate that right away. Have it covered at all times. Avoid torrenting off of dodgy sites. Don't download anything you're not sure of. Uh, make sure you have a good anti-malware program. Helps to protect your computer. And always just make sure that nothing weird is running on your computer that shouldn't be because that's how they get in. That's how routers get in, that's how hackers get in, and that's what happened to Elizabeth in this film. And so this is what is so great about this film is that while the film is fictional and this person is not real, this person is experiencing something that millions have experienced and still experience. If a router wants to come in and watch me on my webcam, they can watch me pick my nose and masturbate. Enjoy! <laughs> <laughs> but then they'll take but that in all serious. <laughs> <laughs> but in all seriousness, it's we rely on Mm -hmm. but also severely underestimate the internet. And of course, it's easy for us to say and like totally moralize and be like, 
don't trust internet interactions. It's a horrible place. You shouldn't trust it. Yes, internet bullying is a serious problem. Absolutely. Like, mm-hmm. let's just moralize it. Like, yeah, this happens. It's like, but the, we're reacting to something that is far bigger. The bigger problem is we don't fully understand how the internet operates yeah. and what is going on. And so Elizabeth, nobody believes that this video that she has seen that... Uh, she has a video of and like she shows it to cybercrime. She's showing it to people. She's like, this is real. They're like, mm, this isn't this is just a viral prank. This yeah. isn't real. So it's easy to dismiss it because she it's the Internet and quote, what did you expect? You should have expected this. That's like a direct quote from her boyfriend in the movie. It's like you should have expected this instead of the grander problem of that is a thing that happens. Yeah. Let's stop the bigger problem from happening, which is these ratters and hackers and everybody else. Let's try to prevent problems instead of being reactionary. It's like, yes, protect yourself, but also we shouldn't have to protect ourselves. So that's kind of like the overall all thing, right? But also, yeah, don't open attachments from strangers. Just, it's like, just minor. But people don't know, yeah, right? Exactly. And that's the thing. They still don't know. There's there's no proper like internet, like education knowledge, unless you go into no, the for field sure. yourself of IT. Yeah. It's, yeah. Unless people are like I'm interested in IT I'm interested in cybersecurity like I my background used to be history I just was a history major I knew as much as I knew <laughs> yep. about computers and stuff like that enough to get me by and then I started a job where I actually deal day in day out with IT and security and stuff like that and I'm just like I'm always being like people need to know more about what they're getting into because you can use the internet it'd be a great fun place and stuff like that but be aware like all things if you walk into a dangerous neighborhood you know just be aware of what's happening around you you, you can't it's not like you can't go in there you, you're more than welcome to but just be aware of what exists out there absolutely and last thing about the den and we have to touch on because both these movies kind of fall in the realm so generally speaking also as a fan of extreme horror and extreme cinema Mm. snuff films yeah the concept or this idea that people are being murdered on film for profit essentially because i mean that's kind of what that's exactly what elizabeth is watching she's watching a film that was created for profit, right? And this gets us to the end of the den, but also this jumps into a little bit of Megan is missing. So we don't, we as like the general society, we don't really know for sure if real stuff films exists because we are regular people that aren't buying murder films, right? So we don't know for sure. As far as I know, as far as all the research is showing us, we don't know. We can only speculate. Have people died on, been killed on camera? Absolutely. There's lots of death films and gore films. You can watch like executions. Like you can just, people used to, you could still watch people be executed. That's live. Um, Like faces of death, Al-Qaeda beheading videos. Like that stuff exists. For sure. But the deep, dark web, never been there. I'm, you know, I'm good. I don't even know how to get there. But like people that potentially exist. And again, horror is a great place to explore this idea of snuff films actually existing because the vast majority of us, we don't know. We don't know. But it's terrifying to think that it is actually happening, but it probably is. Yeah. Because like you said, we li- we come to the last five minutes of this film. So we've seen... These terrible things happen. Elizabeth is trying to find her partner who's been kidnapped by this organization. We end up finding out this is this big organization that does this, but they're doing this. They're selling these things to regular suburban people anywhere online. Anybody who has a credit card. Who has a credit card, which I end up being laughing, be like, you're an idiot putting in your information into this deep, dark website, dummy. <laughs> like, <laughs> they're going to find out that, that as well. your CEO That's not be 
father of this like great company is buying <laughs> snuff videos or something like that. But it's more than just that. Like I remember pausing the screen at the end of the film because yeah. they show like Elizabeth. Yeah. They like it's like it's an actual like here's a screen. You can buy so many hours of this. You can buy this hours of the deck. Yeah. You can buy this yeah. information, right? And then they show like the new yeah. the UK girl and like what they can see. And I was just like, so people yeah. are just like not just buying to watch a film of their death. They're actually buying to watch their life. It's another form of voyeurism. It's another way of being like, yes. oh, well, I can watch yeah. their interactions and they don't know that I'm doing this. And I like the yeah. fact that this film, it shows us that and it shows us that it's just like this regular suburban father who has a son who, you know, steps in and it makes you think like, you know, anyone could be accessing this. So in one of our biggest resources for this episode is this really great book uh, on found footage horror films by Alexandra Heller, Nick Nicholas. And she says in the book, you know, they call them snuff fiction. So like these faux snuff, like disturbing, more like disturbing found footage movies that perhaps snuff fictions are actually more prevalent than the real thing. Maybe. But she posits that because it's so interesting, we're so fascinated morbidly about this concept of snuff films. So we maybe see them more in movies cinematically than happens in real life. But again, we don't really know this for sure. These movies aren't going to just show up. People aren't going to publicize that they've made authentic stuff films or that they're buying for them. This is only for the deepest, darkest personalities. So talking about the ending of The Den. So the ending of The Den, I liked this idea, but I don't like how it looked because it took me totally out of this like found footage environment, right? Maybe just keep it at, oh, Here's this computer screen, another computer by getting this using as almost like this portal into this other world of voyeurism, sadistic pleasures. But it kind of took me out of it because it totally is a bit different. It's cinematically a bit different, but it does give commentary to this continuous cycle of depravity that exists because there's literally nothing or no one that can stop these people. It can't stop the Joshes of the world. It can't stop this organization. Cyber Crimes Unit, when Elizabeth goes to them, they're like, we're deeply understaffed. I'm like, fair. But also this is a big problem. And this is like side note, like, I watch a YouTuber's videos, Mama Max, and he does a lot of investigation himself of sexual predators on the internet. And he re- he reports them to the FBI constantly and nothing ever comes out of it. Because like, you can imagine how much they have to deal with. Like that is the big problem. There's a massive problem with the internet and who's using it and who fucking shouldn't be using it. And it's such a breeding ground for sexual predators. And we see not only does Liz get caught up in it, but anyone in her family. So it's not just the person that gets spied on. It's everyone in her life. Yes, that UK person that she randomly for fun connected with and now is brought into the fold. Right. So normal people like Liz are getting caught up in this violence but then seemingly seemingly normal people are buying into the violence. Like we live in this voyeuristic, curious, apathetic society. So I would not be surprised if snuff films and this ability to buy into violence actually exists at the click of a button. Well said. Do we want to move into uh, Megan is Missing now that we've ended on that note? Let's do it. (laughs) All right. the stars of the hour on Amy's new video camera. <laughs> You're a ho. H-O ho. Oh, there you are. <laughs> Hello, my name's Amy Herron and today's January 13, 2007. Oh shit, the hot squad has arrived. Get the f- out of my face. I'll f- 
you, bitch. <laughs> oh my god. I was talking to this kind of cool guy, and he's gonna be there, so I thought I'd check him out. Damn, all the hot girls in one place. Okay. Yeah, where you're not. I was at summer camp when I was 10. You were 10 when you did it? I'll just know. We'll know when the right guy comes along. Hey, Josh. Hey, cute girl. Ah. <laughs> Doesn't he look like Brad Pitt? Why don't you come on over here and play with me? And yeah, and your dreams, you dork. So, alone at last. I was just wondering if you talked to Megan today. No, I haven't. Megan Stewart, a beautiful, popular 14-year-old girl, vanished without a trace after going out with friends two days ago. The footage clearly shows that she encounters a man who appears to lead her away. I loved her so much, and now she's gone because of you! Well, now that you've come forward, do you fear for your own life? Do you trust me? Yes. What did she do to Megan? Kelly, your story with this film. Well, I've known about Megan is Missing for a good number of years, but never sat down with it myself until last summer. Because I think it was last summer or the summer before, a bunch of young TikTok users found out about Megan is Missing and had a lot of very visceral reactions to it. Um, and so I finally had to sit down with it. So now I've watched it three times in the past year, which is a lot. It will, will, it will be shelved for a little while. How about you? My story with this film is I knew about it um, because last summer I watched a special presentation. I can't remember who put it on, but they were talking about found footage horror and Mary Beth McAndrews talked about it, a really impacting found footage horror film for people to watch if they could stomach it. And I remember going to Callie being like, hey, last summer, do you think I could watch this film? And you said no. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. You you said no. I don't think you're at that level. You're not like you weren't ready yet. It's not filtered in. It's, it was filtered out. And <laughs> uh, since then, yeah. uh, we talked about it and I brought it up again because I they talked about this film in the found footage documentary that was on Shudder. They talked to Michael Goy yeah. about his film. And I was like, no, I need to see yeah. this now because the fact that he the way he he talked about it. I was like, this intrigues me. I really want to see this. And so that's when we talked, discussed it. And I watched it for the first time with you for the podcast. And uh, yeah. I definitely have thoughts, feelings, lots yeah. of feelings. While The Den gives me thoughts, this movie gives me feelings. <laughs> <laughs> I love that distinction because I, yeah, no, I totally get that. Okay. Well, Jess, what do you like about Megan is Missing? Oh God, this is hard because when I try to describe to people why I like this film, it's like, I like it because it shows reality. And I, I was moved by this film. And I know, mm -hmm. I, and I don't understand the hate that this film gets. And I, I know we'll talk about it. And I know that people are like, it's, they feel it's very exploitative and it was feels, it was very inappropriate or just no one should ever have made this film. But yet I think very differently. I think this film, I'm glad this film was made. I think that people should watch it and get some, learn something about um, some things that really exist out in the world, such as child molestation, sexual predators online. Like Michael Goy goes in and he actually, shows things in this film that people aren't aware about like when we were watching this there was things that were happening throughout the film like that's a tactic of a sexual predator online that's a tactic that's a tactic and I was like this is important information for people to know about because no one knows these stories unless they hear about it later after something terrible has happened and so what I liked about it is that I was moved like I when I finished the film I was just like 
fuck, this film is was a hard watch indeed. Yeah, the last 20 minutes are last 22 minutes are terrible. A part of me was like wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. I guess a part of me has seen a little bit worse and so I was like, uh, I feel like it could have been worse. I feel like things were a little bit tame. Things can almost always be worse, trust me. Yeah, things could almost like <laughs> things could be worse and they have been. Historic like reality, things can get worse. Yeah. Um so I feel yeah. like the last 22 minutes, the ones that really disturbs everyone, I was just like, yeah, that was still disturbing. I was definitely disturbed, especially because of, we'll talk about this later, a scene that was very reminiscent to a shrouded hand video that you and I had just watched like days before. <laughs> Fuck. And for me, it's like the first 40 minutes of this film are also what really impacted me and I feel like are the most important parts of this film. Like for me, the most important part of this film is like the first 40 minutes because you learn yeah. about some yep. real realities that exist for young girls, especially who have been molested by other men. Um, that was yeah. really hard pitting. Yeah, I kind of put it to, they kind of do a good job with the found footage format. It did say like these are based on true events that it it does state that it's been put together yeah. to showcase this whole story. So I respect that. I get that instead of it just being edited and doctored without anybody saying anything because you're like, oh, that's not going to be true. I'm glad in the end that you sat through it. You liked it, folks. We watched this together. I thought that that would be a good idea. It's probably the one of the most disturbing movies we've ever covered for this podcast um and i was glad for it um i'm glad i love megan is missing glad that it exists and i'm glad that we covered it it's made it into my top five extreme horror films i think it's deeply disturbing all the way through just like you said especially on this watch when i was with you as making all much many more notes throughout the first 40 minutes because there's so many moments that are just awful scenes of misogyny and toxic masculinity and what it's like to just be a young person in the world. And it's, it's just, it's just a downer beginning to end, but it's really, I think, ingenious kind of production, the way that it was all put together, the pacing of it, you know, with that ending. I love that people hate this movie, but I like, I think it makes for such great, interesting discussion because it makes people really uncomfortable, which I love movies that do that. I like it that it did does it for myself. Could it have been more graphic? Absolutely. But there are those movies. That's August Underground and a lot of other yeah. movies that exist out there to show that. It wasn't gratuitous because it doesn't need to be because that wasn't the point of the movie. Yeah. And sometimes the implication of violence is more upsetting than actually seeing it, right? Think about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Everybody likes to think that that's such like a brutal, gory movie. So much of it is off screen or implied. Still makes her in a highly effective horror movie. So it's, I think this is a fantastic movie, a super found footage gem, very disturbing. And um, it has great pacing, a compelling format and a gut punch ending. Really? What's not to like? Like if I have to nitpick, I don't like the backlash that this movie gets, but that's not against the movie itself. And that's, I agree with you too. I I, you know? I dislike the backlash because I don't understand it because I'm like, everyone walks away. They'd be like, I was so disturbed. I had to shut it off. I'm like, good. The movie did its job. Did you, did you think about later about what you watched later and how upsetting that was? Like about the fact that these things really exist in this reality? Yeah. But I feel like everyone are 
they're pointing on some things in this film that I disagree on that they get upset about. Mm-hmm. So I know some people don't like some of the acting, but these were young actors, maybe their first film. Again, I've seen way worse acting in indie micro budget oh, films. Yeah. So it was fine for me. I don't really care. But in the end, I don't dislike anything about the film itself. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, even when people say like the acting is bad, I'm just like, they're teenagers. And that is too. And it's a found yeah. footage film. If their <laughs> act if their acting is too good in a found footage film, then it takes me out. Like then I know it's not real. Exactly. <laughs> good point. Yeah, we're such sticklers. I'm like, I actually want again, I want my found footage to be gritty and dirty. So your acting cannot be Oscar worthy necessarily. Okay. Exactly. But yeah. I will say that the actress who plays Amy at the end is a really fucking good job. Okay. Yeah. So don't tell me these actors are not good. This is Michael Goy the writer director of Megan is missing and I was uh got I got a text from Amber Perkins the lead actress in my movie that it was exploding on on TikTok at the moment and I didn't get to give you the customary warnings that I used to give people before they watched Megan is missing which are do not watch the movie in the middle of the night do not watch the movie alone and if you see the words photo number one pop up on your screen you have about four seconds to shut off the movie if you're already kind of freaking out before you start seeing things that maybe you don't want to see. So apologies to those who are already posting about how the movie has freaked them out. But fair warning to those of you who are still contemplating watching the film. Thanks. So let's talk about Megan is Missing. First off, we got to talk about the fact, again, we're here to talk about found footage horror, why it's effective as a medium. So Megan is Missing. It's filmed through mobile phone cameras, webcams, camcorders. Again, it creates this sense of authenticity, and we want that in our found footage. And I think Megan is Missing does this very, very well. The news reports, like chef's kiss, like they are so good. Again, it makes it makes me sometimes think I'm like, wow, is this real? Like I would understand like somebody just like popping into this movie because they did that all very, very well. I think so much of this is a great found footage movie. So the first hour of the movie, which so many people like to claim is so boring, but again, I need the banality and monotony yeah. of everyday life for me to give a shit about what happens at the end of the movie to these girls. But found footage, like, yeah, there's so, you watch Paranormal Activity so much when they starting just getting the movie going. It's like, oh, there's my partner brushing their teeth. You know, let's talk about the video camera that we now have. Like, we need to see this day in, day out, have your morning coffee, right? We have to establish real life moments for these people, right? Because with that dramatic last 22 minutes, is going to be even more impactful, right? Yeah. And that's found footage for you. And that's why I think that this movie can be so effective. The tone does change once we do see Megan's photos. They themselves are very different, right? Composition, the lighting on them. It's very harsh. It's very amateur. Everything from that moment on takes a much cruder, more grittier, like raw feel. Yeah, because it takes you into that true kind of crime aspect of it. Because, like, at the time that we see those photos, we also have also been introduced to the surveillance camera. So, like you said, there's another yeah. element of found footage and technology. Is yeah. We've now got surveillance camera of seeing Megan being taken away by someone, adding in the photos, adding... So, it's like, it's adding to us that realism of the film being like, oh, shit, this could be something that we could be really watching 
happening unfold in this town about this young girl and this young girls that that go missing and so that's really interesting how like you said they they actually add in a lot of different elements of found footage to bring together that's like kind of cohesive story but like you said the first 40 minutes are the most important because they're giving us the story of how this comes to be and how this comes and how the last 20 minutes come to happen right a first hour of the movie is a gate is amy and megan's gaze right um, it's through their it's through their webcams amy now has this new camcorder that she got for her birthday so it's through there and then the remainder of the movie is through the gaze of the predator it's impactful because it seems so real and it's coming back to this male gaze at the end of the movie right like i said when we were talking about the dad and those killers he's this anonymous figure we never see him in full view we do not know what he looks Looks like he could be anyone because he is everyone. And I know we've talked about this concept before, and we've talked about like Michael Myers and the Halloween franchise and slashers wearing masks. They can be anyone. And then at the very end of the movie, like we re- we find this footage, this found footage, it's discovered footage because he leaves the camera somewhere very easily found. Oh, he wants it, which found. shows his. Yeah. He wants, exactly, he wants it found. He's confident. He wants to increase our fear. He is out there and there is nothing we can do to stop this, quote, Josh, the Joshes of the world. Again, seeing the camera through the male gaze and his gaze is this sadistic, voyeuristic gaze. Which brings us to something really interesting that I liked learning about and then jumping into exploitation, but highway safety films. Um, this was brought up in Alexander Heller's Nicholas's book, which I found really interesting because I wasn't around in the 50s and 60s. So I don't I don't even know. I didn't go to driving school either, but I doubt that they use these anymore. But oh, do they? I've seen one. Do they? Oh, I've seen. I Yeah. <laughs> like in driver's school, they show this in a, in a, in a driver's school. <laughs> I went to well, it's North Bay. So it was one of the small driving schools. <laughs> and the guy was like he was from like he was like 67 years old. Like so he would have mm, seen a video mm. like this. And we've and I remember being like, shit, I've seen like actual safety PSA videos of actual like death and like accidents because that was the way of scaring us into drive not driving. They don't do that anymore, but like these right. were like <laughs> those are like those small driving schools that are not always regulated. Like they have some regulation, right. but not too much. <laughs> oh my god! So Highway Safety Foundation films. Really, yes, were from the 50s and 60s that showed reenactments of small-town America with actual footage of car accidents and mangled, bloodied corpses and victims of these car crashes. And so there's these reenactments juxtaposed with real-life gore. It was very shocking to people in the 50s and 60s, and there was this great debate at the time that because these were supposed to be PSAs, educational videos, there were people or some people were upset about it. They were saying, is this educational or is this just exploitation? Is this effective to get people to drive safer and be aware and just just, again, have a general awareness of roadside safety and stuff like that? And so there was one in particular a high not a highway safety film but it was a safety film put on by this foundation that created these safety films called 
the child molester. And it came out in 1964. And this was an educational film warning against stranger danger. And that's where that term started with a shocking ending with a crime scene with images of two small girls, real dead bodies of two murdered girls. This is on YouTube, folks, if you'd like to watch it. I did for research sake. And what does this have to do with Megan is missing? Well, what was upsetting so much about the, the, the child molester is that child abuse and sexual abuse is a very highly charged topic. It provokes a lot of visceral responses from viewers. And they did that in the 60s because people knew that, yes, strangers can be dangerous, but do we need to see the debt, this whole story play out and then see this image of dead girls at the end? Maybe it's effective. But why we're talking about this, because people say the same thing about Megan is missing. Okay, they say it's shocking. It's disturbing. It's going. It makes me very uncomfortable. Right. This is what people are saying. It's exploitative. It's exploitation because Michael Goy has stated that, like, this is kind of like a PSA to parents for this stranger danger and the dangers of the Internet and monitoring your teenage girls or teenagers on the internet and people who they're talking to. Jess, why don't I talk a little like briefly about like what is exploitation? Because I feel like that term like feminist gets thrown around a lot when it comes to honestly a lot of movies that I love in the extreme horror world that they're just exploitation. There's no merit to them. It's exploitation. But if you come down to like the bare foundation and definition, if you want to go by definitions, we love definitions here. But an exploitation film is a film that tries to succeed financially by exploiting current trends, niche genres, or lurid content. What is the definition of exploit? To exploit, to make use of meanly or unfairly for one's own advantage. So often exploitation films are low quality B-movies. They are historically setting important trends and they gain cult followings. Often exploitation films use uh, features suggestive or explicit sex, violence, drug use, nudity, gore, destruction, rebellions, mayhem, anything that's bizarre. Um, and we first seen these films in the 1920s and they can became really popular in the 60s and 70s and then censorship relaxed and they became a bigger one. Often exploitation has to do more with the viewer's perception of the film than the actual content. And often the films in exploitation genre are often very transgressive. They're tackling subject matter that is normally avoided by television and popular cinema. So I feel like when people say, well, Megan is missing, it's exploitative, it's kind of missing the mark. It's like it could be considered an exploitation film because it's addressing subject matter that people are very uncomfortable with. Child molestation, child abduction, child murder. Like people are very uncomfortable with that. And I feel like whenever we see these types of films that deal with such matters, people say, no, you're exploiting children and you shouldn't be making these films. And this is what has come up with Megan is Missing. People are like, is this a PSA that's gone too far or is this an exploitation film? I disagree on both. I do not think that the film is exploiting uh, Megan and Amy anyway. Unfortunately, is a sad reality for millions and millions of young girls all across the world. So in the book, Found Footage Horror Films, again by Alexandra Heller Nicholas, she posits for Megan is Missing. Is it educational or just like exploitation? Well, it comes down to intentions. And Michael Goy, who created and did so much for this movie, has 
sincere intentions behind making Megan is Missing. He is a known professional and was deeply affected by real life stories like Megan, like Amy, that he continuously sees on the news, that we continuously see on the news right now. He combined elements of seven different real life true crime cases about murder and abduction of children and online predators. So even though Megan is Missing is a fictional movie, most, almost all of what happens to Megan and Amy actually happened to real people, folks. And then the, I guess I could come down to, are we now exploiting victims of true crime? That I think may be a bigger conversation for a different day, but it's bringing to light what has happened to a variety of other people. But his intentions were very good. He wanted to avoid what he called the, quote, Hollywood treatment of stories like this. There's no metaphors. There's no allegories. There's no cutting away from the trauma here. We know it could have been much worse. We know it is worse out there. This is not a fucking episode of CSI. This is reality shown through a fictional lens. And I know, Jess, you feel very strongly about this. Josh is the exploiter of Amy and Megan. I am not the exploiter. Michael Goy is not the exploiter. This fictional Josh character who could be anyone is everyone. He is the exploiter of these girls. Exactly. And that's what this film shows us right from the get-go. Like, we see in this film, like, when Kelly and I were watching this together, I was picking up on things, like, right away that I knew based upon my own history and my own knowledge of sexual predators and stuff like that online. Not something that I researched on my own, just something I've had to learn over the years. But there are tactics that uh, Michael Goya had included in this film to show us how these sexual predators work. First off, in the film, uh, Megan's friend Lexi introduces her to Josh, sends over a picture of him. And this is actually a known tactic of sexual predators will do with young girls is that they will meet a young girl online. They will get them to do like they'll have chats and stuff with them. They'll get them to send photos of themselves and things like that. Very sexually explicit photos. And then what they'll do is they will blackmail them and say, "Okay, I've got this information on you. I've got this knowledge. You need to connect me to other women, other friends of yours. And so Lexi ends up sending Josh over to Megan. And right away, I knew, right, because the way Lexi was talking about him, like, she doesn't, she seems not very cool about this and very offhanded. And she ends up seeing, you see uh, Lexi feel very guilty later on when Megan goes missing because that's a tactic of a sexual predator. And then we end up seeing Megan connecting with Josh. But like, like Kelly said, web camera's broken. The photo is just probably just a standard static photo that he found online. Megan even starts to call him out sometimes on things that are, seems like weird. Like at first, like he's like, oh, yep. pull your lo- web camera down lower. And she's like, no, like I don't want to yep. do it. But then he starts using the tactic of like, you know, all gro- like kind of grooming her, like talking to her yep. and giving her the love and affection because he knows that she is not like, Megan is a troubled young woman because she's had a troubled past. Is not a troubled past of any of her doing is unfortunately the doing of, of others and authority that were supposed to be there to help and protect her. And yeah. this is what I feel Megan is missing starts getting into. It's, it's not just dealing with the fact that these mm-hmm. sexual predators exist online and will try to groom young women into getting them to meet them, meet up with them and pick them up because that's also another tactic of like, oh, let's meet up and pick up for ice cream. They pick up, 
they take them away, they're gone. Like, that's it. Um, and that's often how a lot of sting operations use to connect to find sexual predators online. Yeah. Like, a lot of police yeah. will, like, pretend that they're 12-year-old girls and then yep. meet them at that place and then arrest them there. So this film shows us how these sexual predators exist online, but it's also showing us how they exist in reality. Megan is unfortunately surrounded by sexual predators by her stepfather. She was raped at the age of nine years old, repeatedly by her stepfather. And she talks about Mm -hmm. it to her best friend, Amy. And she tells her, and she feels guilt about it because she feels like her her mother blames her for that because he's in jail now because he was raping me when I was nine years old and I feel bad about that, I feel guilty. That scene really hit me really hard because I had an experience like that. I, being sexually molested as a young girl and not having your mother believe you. That was really fucked up. And then later on, we end up finding out that Megan was again raped at the age of 10 by her camp counselor. Everyone keeps talking about this camp counselor being a teenager. He No, he's not. He's a grown man. The way Megan describes the camp counselor, she says he looks like Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey does not look like a teenager. He looks like a fucking grown man. And I know that people get very upset by the scene and the way she's talking about giving this blowjob to her best friend, Amy. But if you watch this scene and if you know anything or know anyone who has experienced any sort of rape or molestation, Megan is trying to normalize what happened to her. And she's doing her damnedest not only to ask for help because like Amy's uncomfortable and doesn't know what to say, but like, of course, they're young girls. They're just like, oh, you had sex for the first time. That's so cool because this whole time, the first 40 minutes of this film is watching Megan being treated like a sexual object by her peers and by these older men at these parties and stuff like that so they're like okay well this is sex this is why they normalize but Megan has already has already been molested as a young child and something I learned in my own therapy growing up and dealing with my own uh, sexual molestation is that young girls will go two different ways when this happens to try and protect themselves or normalize their lives they will either be under sexualized be scared of men, hide away, they fear sex and all that. That's the direction I went. Or they become like Megan's. They become very hypersexualized because that is a way of gaining control. They think this is the only way that people love them. This is the only way that people give them attention. This is this is what they've been told by their groomers, by these predators. And Megan is she's not describing like people say like, "Oh my god, it's so explicit how she's describing it." This is how this is how a victim of sexual molestation will have to describe a court room what happened to her in every explicit detail i was i was 12 years old when i had to talk about being molested as a child and i had to go into details about it to a courtroom full of strangers megan is trying to normalize it she's trying to make herself feel normal and understand that she is normal but knowing what happened to her was wrong she knew what happened to her at the age of 10 was wrong by that camp counselor because of what happened to her when she was nine years old And so this is something that this film is not just showing us that these sexual predators exist online, they exist in our home. And one of the things I wanted to get back to is that Megan is Missing has gotten significant support from Mark Claus, who is the founder of Claus Kiss Foundation. And he was a father of 12-year-old Polly Claus, who was abducted at a slumber party and then molested and murdered by Richard Allen Davis in 1993. He was the father of one of her friends. And what Claus has to say is that Megan is Missing is a powerful, important film because it deserves both attention and discussion, and it should serve as a wake-up call for parents everywhere, not just about the dangers that exist online, but the predators that exist in reality and how young women can be vulnerable to 
their friend's best friend, you know, inappropriate behavior throughout the world and just listening to their daughters when they're talking about the things that happened to them. Of course, Amy is going to respond to Megan saying, that is so cool. Oh, wow. You had sex because she's a young girl. She's only 14. She's never this is not part of her life. She lives in a very wonderful home and a very protected space. She's not had to deal with sexual transgressions against her. And that is why I feel like Michael Goy, when he comes out with his film, he has positive intention because he's trying to educate people on the realities that exist, not just online, not these weird fetish websites that are inappropriate or everything, but they, they, these are actual predators that exist day to day in our lives. Yeah, Megan met Josh online, and that's the, fo the focal point of the film. But throughout the first 40 minutes of the film, we have learned about the actual horrors and disturbing things that have happened in her life. And that is reality. That is truth. Thank you, Jess, for, for being comfortable to, to share that, because I think that you have a very unique perspective. You have a very personal, different perspective. I think a lot of people, when they watch this movie, and I literally just saw it recently on Instagram, somebody that I know had watched Megan is Missing, had all kinds of awful things to say about the movie. And I'm just mm. like, of course we all can watch movies and we all come from our own experience, our own lens, but it is really helpful to learn from other people's perspective on films, especially films like Megan is Missing that is so transgressive and it is so disturbing and it is going to provoke, like I said, so many visceral reactions from people because of the subject matter. It's uncomfortable from beginning to end. Just like you, like you said, Jess, it's the first 40 minutes is also very disturbing. If you're paying attention to all these little hints and these clues and these red flags, and I mean, on my first watch, I didn't pick up on it, but you and I, when you were, we were watching it, on that party scene yeah. is just wall to wall, awful, awful things happening. Grown men are there partying with teenage girls that are 14, 15 years old. Children, grown men partying with children, assaults a girl. Amy kind of exerts herself. She gets hit because he essentially sexually assaults her. She asserts herself. She gets hit. You know, we see all these patriarchal views of women throughout this movie from beginning to end that women should know their place. And where is their place that's either on their knees or dead? And we see that throughout this entire movie. And I know one of the big things that people have is that, oh, well, Megan or Amy, but particularly poor Megan, the big, a massive victim of this whole thing, is hypersexualized. Michael go hypersexualized. Are these teenagers hypersexualized for film? Or are teenagers just hypersexual? Because they are. Have, have you ever been around? Do you remember being a teenager? Because I knew women, knew girls like Megan. I wanted to be like Megan. I was more of an Amy growing up. I had that good, lovely home, the safe home and like the very, quote, normal environment, right? And I saw these hypersexual girls and I kind of, I admired their confidence and probably so much of their confidence came from really bad places. Yeah. And like, I don't know, we didn't talk about that stuff in the 90s. You know what I mean? So were these girls hypersexualized or are girls just like sexual? They teenagers absolutely are sexual. And I know that is makes you one that makes viewers uncomfortable. It should. It should. Yes. This, this it should. Like there are so many issues of many layers of issues with teenagers having sex and getting that sexual education lack thereof. But there was this scene 
scene that just really, besides that party scene, but it was even before they got to the party when Megan's on the phone with this guy and a bunch of their, everybody's friends are together, but she's like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to go to the party. Can Amy come? He's like, no, Amy's lame. She can't come. And she's like, well, she's my friend. Like, I'd like to bring her. And she's like, well, then maybe I won't go. And he says to her, he's like, you're the premier party girl. And she's like, and Megan says, maybe I don't need that crown. Maybe I don't want that crown. He's like, yeah, you do. What else do you have? I remember noting that. What else does this 14-year-old girl have besides her body and her mouth to please men? So, hey, we're starting out this before the party scene, then the party scene, and we're already disturbed. Like, it's... <laughs> Michael Goy's intentions were very clear, and it was not to exploit young girls. It was showing that young girls get exploited. Yes. And there's very different... That's very different. Those are two very, very different things. Whether you think this movie was educational or or exploitative, people are going to have their very, very personal views. And that's great. Again, I love the discussion that keeps being had with Megan is missing. But the construction of the real is very convincing in this movie. Found footage can be very candid. And we see that in this movie. We are showing people in real places with real reactions and essentially real scenarios. Again, again, they may be fictional, but they are real scenarios that people have been in. We feel like we know Megan and Amy by, you know, that hour mark. We've been with them. We've lived with them. We've experienced everything they're experiencing. And that's what ends up making the ending, of course, as upsetting as it is. This movie was meant for parents to watch. Of course, kids are going to get to it. And it's for parents. If you talk to parents of children, they have a very different perspective than somebody who doesn't have children. I don't have human children. I'm going to see this movie very differently. Again, it comes Mm -hmm. down to perspective, right? I don't come from a place of sexual trauma. I can only see this as somebody being like, yeah, I'm sure that's horrific. Yeah. I don't know if it's horrific. I can only assume that it is. So I'm going to assume in this movie, like everybody's reactions are par for the course. You know what I mean? But you talk to parents, they have a very different view. They think this movie is horrifying and they hug their children afterwards. They're like, yep, no, I don't want this to happen to my kids. Maybe they'll make changes in in how their teenagers and children are using the internet. Because like kids even have cell phones right now. Little kids my seven-year-old niece has a cell phone, like all of this mm-hmm. stuff. So there's easy access for these people to get to children. And it's that, again, like we keep saying, that is the most terrifying thing here. That's what's exploitative. This movie is not exploitative. It's just showing that there is exploitation. And a lot of comments about this movie, and again, so many other extreme or disturbing movies that we like. So other viewers will say, this movie should be illegal. That last 22 minutes should be illegal. This movie shouldn't have been made. Nobody should watch this. People are attempting to censor art. And we know that that is a slippery slope. And that maybe, again, is a bigger discussion for a different time. But this is dark. This is transgressive. This is a dark, transgressive film. And if horror can't be horrific, then why does it exist in the first place? I completely agree with you because as someone who comes from a background of child sexual trauma, I feel like as an individual, this is an important film for people to see. It was hard for me to watch as someone who is like, fuck, when Megan has that one scene talking about how her mother blamed her, I was like, God damn it, Megan. That I, re- I, I was know. like sitting there being like, and I remember when my mother told me to pretend it never happened. And then later, an hour later to have a person who was sexually molesting me telling, pro- apologizing to me about what happened. So 
So I was like, wait, I was told it's not supposed to happen. Now all of a sudden you're validating what happened to me happened. That's fucked. But people need to know that this shit happens. And this is why when people are saying like this, no one should see this movie. I'm like, no, people should see this movie. People need to know how fucking disgusting men can be towards young girls and how, like Kelly said, they are exploited from a very young age. And you know, and like, I know some people go out and they're like, oh, well, don't watch this film because all of a sudden now their parents are going to police everything that their daughters are doing. That's not the case. That's not, if anything, they should just have more knowledge and awareness and educate their, their daughters. I know my sisters were doing some shady things online back in the days on the chat rooms with some shady guys. And I had to talk to them being like, you know, have conversations. It's more just having conversations and having the awareness of what's out there and being careful and protective and also sticking with your gut. I think if Megan had more of that conversation and had more of that confidence in herself, she would have been like, fuck you, Josh, and shut off the web camera and walked away, right? But because she didn't have that, and I feel like this is why this film is important because people can have that education, that knowledge, and that experience. And like Kelly said, fictionalized horror allows us to do that because people are going to be fucking pissed off if we all knew that that was a real that was like a real thing that was being filmed and that Megan and Amy weren't actresses and they were all real and that you know you know what I mean like if it was a truly snuff yeah. film but it's not snuff this is a fictionalized film based on factual information and now we've arrived at Spencer's final thoughts this time over a nice warm cup of tea provided by our sponsor Brutalities since we're spinsters, we obviously love tea. One of our favorite things is to curl up with a movie on a cold, rainy day. Or with a good book. Absolutely. With a mug of delicious, hot tea. Brutalities is a company that we discovered at a horror convention and fell in love with. They have a variety of tea blends from black, white, and more. But what stood out to us was not just how yummy they were, but their spooky and metal-inspired names. With Screamsicle and Children of the Candy Corn, we thought Brutalities were a perfect match made in... I am obsessed with tiramisu. And I'm currently obsessed with Banana Bell. So go to Brutalities.com to grab some for yourself with listener code SPINSTER15 to get 15% off your purchase. For our Canadian fans, please contact them directly before ordering for shipping quotes. So now that we have our tea, let's put these spirits to rest. People are uncomfortable when films come from the perspective of victims. We are often shown terrible events that transpire and we call them exploitative and we call them disturbing. Yet this is the reality of a lot of true crime, a lot of heinous crimes that exist in the world, the truth and the horror that these people have experienced. These films are trying to warn us about them. The Den, it's coming from the perspective of the hackers going into and exploiting Liz, but at the same time too, it's also educating us about how to use the internet, how to pro properly protect ourselves, what to do and what exists out there. Whereas Megan is Missing gave us the perspective of from the victims and what's out there and how they are preyed upon by these predators. And so watching this month, the hate that these films, like everyone loved The Den. I was like, great, I'm glad everyone really loved this film. It is really important. It really gives us a lot of educational stuff. But I, it was really almost kind of disheartening to see how much hate Megan is Missing was getting because I watched this film and I felt so moved by it and also felt very strongly about it. And maybe that's because of my own biases, but because I felt like it was very important for people to see because it was also giving us perspective from that of the victims. And we don't often get that. And yet right now I'm watching people go online. I'm, I know I'm going to get hate about this from people. Don't at me, please. I won't respond. But everyone is loving this new Jeffrey Dahmer show. They're like, this is so fucking great. It's so amazing. And I'm like, wait, I don't understand. We look at a film like Maiden is Missing. We say this is exploitative and shouldn't be made. Yet we're praising this television series on Jeffrey Dahmer, which is essentially 
we're watching shows about true crimes from the perspective of a killer, a serial killer, and we find ourselves captivated by it. We call it prestige horror. Yeah, at the end of the day, isn't this not glorification of a serial killer? Isn't this not people learning more about what he did as an individual and why he perpetrated those crimes on people? So people are okay with watching that, watching from the, from the perspective of a killer, but they're not okay with watching from the perspective of the victims. And that, I think, is what's fucked up. And I think that's what needs to change. Found footage horror mimics how we view and take in the world around us. Through footage on news reports, social media, websites, news sites, and more, we are essentially amateur eyewitnesses to real-time events. We can be. And this is how there was a surge in the Black Lives Movement during the pandemic and the protests because we were able to see the proof of police brutality. No longer are these scenarios relegated to the back alleys or back rooms in in buildings. This is the raw footage we're seeing. And that is more powerful than watching something on the news, which could has and has been doctored and edited. Found footage can be very effective because we feel like we are there, or at least we could be. And that's what's terrifying. Megan is Missing and The Den are films that really offer no solutions to the horror that we're seeing in this digital age. There's growing realization that we don't understand the rules of this new technology and how it functions. Our society depends so much on online technology that maybe it's gone past control and it's past the point of no return. I love disturbing movies. I started a new Gorecast because of this love of disturbing movies. And I really enjoy transgressive art. These are the films that will startle, disturb, disrupt, and shock the viewer. This style of art or film is not for everyone, but perhaps should be seen by more people. These movies are often labeled only as shock for shock's sake or exploitation, but... Are these movies exploitation because they made you feel uncomfortable? Megan is Missing is one of these movies that people have put this, in my honest opinion, inappropriate label of exploitation or shock for shock's sake. Is Megan is Missing exploitative because it made you feel uncomfortable? It should have. It can be easy to get caught up in our emotions regarding a movie's very disturbing content. But if you sit back and think about why you are uncomfortable, it might not be for the reasons you initially thought. Dig deeper. You might be surprised. And Megan is missing in the den. Our leads, Amy, Megan, and Liz, end up in some terrible torture basement dungeon place all chained up, destined for death. Is this excessive for the sake of cinema? Maybe. Is it effective? Absolutely. But there are real world dangers out there for women of all ages, and these films come with an air of foreboding. Warnings to keep ourselves and our friends and family safe from the horrendous darkness of the world we live in. That ends our episode on found footage in the films Megan is Missing and The Den. We want to thank Dance with the Dead for our intro and outro music, Robies, and to all our listeners. And we want to remind you to follow us on our website at spinstersofhorror.com. Also on our social media, we have Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for Spinsters of Horror. There's also our Facebook group, The Spinsters of Horror Coven. We are on Letterboxd, so just search for Horror Spinsters or Spinsters of Horror to follow us there. Our YouTube channel is Spinsters of Horror, where we post all of our recorded special live presentations and minisodes and whatnot. Uh, As well, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on any podcasting app you use. We have merch. Please visit TeePublic to purchase our t-shirts. Next month may be the spooky season, but this time we are getting 
sexy, perverse, and blasphemous with nunsploitation. The movie up for discussion is Ken Russell's infamous The Devils from 1971. But until then, remember, the future of fear is female. <laughs>